welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. And thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM. In this show, I'm going solo, and I would like to explore some of the ideas that keep popping up in conversations about imagination and memorization. I've noticed when people talk about memorization, they seldom factor in the, the idea of using the imagination as the primary tool for memorizing or remembering or learning by heart. And when you think about it, everything that you have retained over the years has been a collaboration between your memory, your imagination, or your imaginative mind, and your rational mind, the ability to collate things and organize things. One of the biggest myths around memorization is, you'll probably be able to guess this and you won't be surprised to hear it, I can't memorize. It's too difficult. I can't retain what I put into my head. It's impossible. I don't know how people do that. And people also tend to discount their imaginations. They'll say things like, well, I'm not that imaginative. Well, who am I to think of things like that? And then continuing on with that one step further, you have creativity, which is a broader based idea that we've talked about a fair amount in this show. Creativity, people will say, I'm just not creative. I don't have a creative bone in my body. I've noticed this discounting happens often with engineers, accountants, and people who work in banking and finance. And yet when you think about engineering, banking, accounting, finance, and those other kind of rational mind jobs, if you pull back a beat or two and think about how much imagination and creativity must happen when somebody's trying to figure out your finances or somebody is trying to come up with creative ways for you to finance your house or your car, whatever it is you're financing. In engineering, how do they get those bridges to stay up over those big rivers? Think of the imagination and creativity required to simply come up with the concept, much less design it, and then create it. For example, the Arthur Ravenel Jr. Bridge, also known as the Ravenel Bridge and the Cooper River Bridge that spans the Cooper River from Charleston, South Carolina to Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. It's a stunning piece of artwork as well as a highly functional modern bridge. And the Cooper River Bridge is only one example of many, many beautiful structures that you'll find all over the world. So when an engineer or an accountant or somebody in finance starts to talk about how unimaginative they are, how narrow they are, how they like to have everything in order, that's all true. It's also true that within the context of the order and the focus and the narrow examination of one thing, you will find a great deal of imagination and creativity. And you will also find memorization. And one of the things about memorization that I like is instead of memorizing traditionally, I like to memorize with my whole body like I'm dancing. I like to move. And what I've noticed about that, when 
I'm memorizing a piece and I'm saying the words aloud and I'm imagining the mountain or I'm imagining a river or someone in the poem. I'm giving that person in the poem a, a, a distinct face. Everything is very large and big and the physicality of the movement is large and big. Not only do I memorize slowly, slowly, always slowly, memorize the, the lines in the poem or the lines in the text, I memorize the environment that I'm in. Now it might be worth noting, you might be interested, I'm recording this show with my MacBook Air on a program called Hindenburg Journalist designed specifically for radio art, making radio shows. I'm sitting on a veranda, I'm in the Philippines, I'm overlooking water, it's a sea, jet skis are going back and forth, pulling tourists behind them, and these little odd long boats that bump up and down like small roller coasters over the waves so that the people riding behind the jet skis are thrown up and down, again like roller coasters, or riding little horses, and the idea is to stay on the on the snaky sort of bouncy thing that's being pulled behind the jet ski and they go up and down up and down in front of this veranda it's a small boutique hotel it's a little little resort and i'm here for two or three days i've been in manila visiting tishvalles for the last four or five weeks and recording all of my shows and doing my work for manila so we came here for a, a three-day relaxation and so i'm sitting on this veranda laptop on my lap recording this show about memorization. Now the reason I bring that up is because if I stepped up to the table that I'm looking at with six or seven chairs around it and a little flower on the table, a few other people gathered in this veranda, if I stepped up to that table and started memorizing a poem by doing great body movements, I would memorize this whole environment. I would see the iron support that holds the roof up. Not only would I see it, but it would be in my memory as I'm remembering the poem um, maybe a month later. I would feel the air, the heat of the day. It's very hot right now here in the Philippines. 95 degrees like it would be, say, maybe hot in Jacksonville, Florida or further south into, into Miami, Florida in the summertime. Very hot. Also, it could be 95 degrees in New York City during the summer as well. So if you've ever been in that kind of temperature, you know, you know how that feels on the skin. I don't really mind it. It's nice. There's a breeze blowing, so it mini minimizes the, the heat a bit. You can hear the wind blowing across the microphone. Maybe a little background, children playing in the pool. Again, the jet skis going by. And you might even be able to hear the wind rustling in the large trees that surround the veranda. There's a fair amount of wind coming off the sea. And in the distance, of course, you have the horizon. The horizon is always part of what you take in when you look at the sea. It's always there, and it's always the same distance. And if you listen closely, you will hear a few roosters crowing in the distance. You may not hear them. I hear them right now. I was over here earlier this morning, looking out on the morning sunrise that came across the water and the roosters were just going on and on and on. I thought there must be a thousand of them next door. 
And as the morning progressed, the roosters settled down and continued to crow now and then, but not as much as they were when the dawn first came, with the sun rising out of the sea. Looking east where the sun came up earlier today, I'm reminded of a line of poetry from Kipling's poem Mandalay, and it goes like this. Oh, ship me east of Suez, where the best is like the worst, where there ain't no Ten Commandments, and a man can raise a thirst on the road to Mandalay, where the flying fishes play, and the dawn comes up like thunder out of China across the bay. I've always liked the idea of the dawn coming up like thunder, boom, and it's there. And that's actually what happens here in this part of the world. In North America, we have a long sunset and a long sunrise. In the Philippines, it's a much shorter proposition. It's night and then it's day. The dawn does come fast here. And that's because we're closer to the equator and there's just not as much movement in the earth. Somehow it happens like that. I don't know the science behind it, but I do know it's dark and then suddenly it's light and you have a little bit of a sunrise, a little bit of the dawn coming up, the dawn cracking over the sea, but not much. Suddenly it's there, the sun's up and it's daytime. So how do you tie the description that I just gave you into a strategy that would help you memorize? Think about it like this. While you probably couldn't say back to me verbatim what I just said to you, you probably have an image in your head about what the sea looks like, about the trees, about how this veranda looks, how the jet skis look going back and forth, the little snaky thing that's going across the water with all the, you know, the tourists riding it, hoping not to fall off. Lots and lots and lots of strong images. So you actually already have the narrative of my environment in your head. And of course, you don't see what I see. What you've done is you've imposed, and I mean this in the best sense of imposing something, you've imposed your own experience, your own imagery around the story that I was telling of getting up this morning, looking out on the sea, and all the things that are going on with me right now. Your imagery, what you have in your head, and what I have in my head, what I'm still seeing right now, wind blowing in the trees, very, very different. And yet, based on my description, you were able to take what I was describing and translate it, transform it, alchemize it really, into something that was familiar to you and expand it in your own imagination. So here we are, back to the idea of the imagination at work and how the imagination with very little effort, very little encouragement, will fill in the blanks. So this great image that you have in your head of an environment that is built around the cues I gave you is the fundamental, the foundational strategy for memorization. Right now you have no words. All you have is a scene. Now, why is that important? Because from that scene that you have built in your head, you can attach words to it. You can play around with the words in a poem and build a scene around the words. And once you build a scene, 
it becomes a lot easier to memorize. Or if you work with a poem and play around with the words within the context of a scene, like this veranda that I'm sitting on now, you will also find that you will be less worried with how fast you get it or do you get it right or how much you can remember right away. You will flow more into the ease of just letting the learning by heart process, the memorization process, happen. So why would memorizing something have value for you? Why would you want to even take the time to do it? So here are a few benefits that you can get from memorizing. First thing that you get is exercise. Your brain really enjoys taking this kind of information and processing it. I say your brain, but really your whole body enjoys it. It engages your entire system. It engages your imagination, your curiosity, your intellect, your psychology, the deeper things that are inside of you. It allows you to ponder existential questions. It also gives you a chance to expand the visions that you have, almost like the dream visions that you have, except you are awake and you can craft almost like little movies in your imagination as you're working with one or two phrases. Playing around with memorization requires no education level. If you're in the first grade, you can do it. If you're 97 years old, you can do it. And of course, the reason why it doesn't matter how old you are or what your education level is, memorization is something that we do all the time. It's really how we survive, taking in information, remembering it, and then putting it together in different combinations to use it as we need to use it as we move through our lives. That's memorization from the broad point of view. I'm now thinking about a little bit more narrow path with memorization, which is one bit of written material that you take in. Now that's going to be very different than, say, for example, memorizing an address. If you move into a new place, you likely will memorize the address. Why? Well, you want to make your way back home. So if you know the address of the location you just moved into, it will come in handy to know it on many different occasions. Here's something that's interesting for me, and this may be something that you've experienced as well. When I really need to know something, like for example, an address or a number, I generally have no trouble memorizing it. I will remember it fairly fast. Why? Because like in the case of an address, you'll use it over and over and you'll do it very soon. And it's important because it's your location. It's where you will find yourself sleeping and eating and dreaming and being alive. Maybe even in this place that you now have as an address, you'll memorize a piece of prose or a poem or who knows, a song around the kitchen table. And another reason to memorize, it makes you feel good. You can have a little bit of fun with it. So on that note, let's do a little memorization workshop right now. So here's the first thing you need to know. In order to become a successful memorizer, you have to keep in mind that short equals success. Short equals success. A successful memorizer does not have to have thousands and thousands of lines. Successful memorization means you only need one image, one little phrase 
to start building your memorization inventory. And once you wrap your head around the idea that you are memorizing, not to have a great vast amount of material you can present to a large audience, you're memorizing for the sheer pleasure of noodling around with words to become acquainted on a deeper level with one phrase or one poem or one idea. Once you take that in, it changes the whole scenario around what you were taught regarding memorization, what I was taught, what we're taught in general about memorization. Memorization, when it's taught in schools, it's more industrial. You've got to get it done right now, and you've got to deliver it, and it's got to be 100% right. You may have had an experience like that. For example, in some school situations, this may not be the case now. Maybe, I don't know. But I know that I've experienced it in my life. The, the teacher asks you to memorize something, and you do. You get it down, you think you have it, and you stand up and you try to recite it and you don't get every word right. And because you miss one word or a phrase, you start to feel like you failed. You feel like, I can't do this. This is too difficult. What is missed in these situations, those flubs, the stumble, the inability to remember a word is actually a benefit and not a liability. And what I mean by that, when you take information in and you learn, it's impossible to take it in all at once. So the little bits that you take in and you retain stay there. The bits that you don't quite retain and you try to remember and you have to go back and reference, those are little opportunities to go deeper into the piece. So the whole thing is a collage of messy learning, really. And somewhere along the way, you will know as much as you need to know in order to really engage with whatever it is you're learning in a way that will have great value for you and when you present it to others or discuss it with others it'll have great value for others as well but in the beginning when you're trying to learn anything it's piecemeal it's small it's incremental and that's why it's always really really wise to appreciate the idea that mess is currency Confusion is currency, doubt is currency, uncertainty is currency when it comes to learning. Now, doubt, uncertainty, mess may not always be currency in some situations. In the learning, creative arenas, it has great value because all of that disruption, all of the pieces falling on the floor, the, the chips of wood, if you're doing carpentry work falling on the floor, all that does is tell you there's progress being made and when you can look at it from the whole point of view rather than from the specific individual point of view it's a lot more valuable and a lot more meaningful and you can continue to learn you can continue your progress by making the mess rather than holding yourself back or doubting yourself because the mess is falling on the floor so what would fall on the floor in a carpentry shop Maybe a little chip of wood, some sawdust, a, a nail, who knows? But it's messy. And then you clean up the mess, and you come back the next day and start over making a new mess. 
So like I said, becoming a successful memorizer requires you to do the same thing. Make a bit of a mess out of what you're doing and see what happens. So on the note of keeping it messy and keeping it small, let's work on a poem. And here's why I would like to offer you. This is a poem you've never heard before. This is a poem that's in my new book, 100 Days, Poems After Cancer. And 100 Days refers to the 100 poems I wrote starting the day after my surgery for prostate cancer, which turned out to be successful, and I'm glad to report that. So the poem's title refers to the 100 days after the surgery when I wrote a poem a day, prose poems really, they're little stories, it's almost like a short memoir as much as it is a book of poems. Little reports from the daily field about what was going on during that day. Of course, a lot goes on during a day. You have to choose a few small things. Like I said, keep it small. A lot's going on. Like right now, I'm still sitting on the veranda looking out on the sea. People are playing on the beach. The roosters, they keep crowing. I don't know how come these roosters crow all the time. So there's a lot that goes on during a day. You can't have everything in a short poem, but you can include a few small things, and that's what I've done here. And the poem we're going to work with, I wrote on the fourth day, and it's titled Nesting Boxes. It has 12 lines, and obviously we won't get all of that memorized right now. What I will offer you is my approach to how I'm memorizing the poem, so you can have a sense of how you might be able to use some of my techniques in some of the work that you do. It's really that simple. So the first thing you do when you want to memorize something, you don't sit down and try to memorize the first line out of the gate. What do you do? You get a sense of the piece. So I'm going to read the poem for you first to give us a sense of the, the, the atmosphere of the piece. Let it, let it soak in. I'm not going to perform it. I'm just going to read it and take it easy and see what happens and let the images wash over me. Now, you could do this a hundred times before you ever start to move in the direction of memorizing the words. And what happens when you work with the atmospheric elements of a piece rather than the specific words of the piece, the words tend to magically, could it be magic or could it be just the natural holistic flow of things? Words tend to fall into place. So here's the poem, Nesting Boxes, number four. Bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes attached to the dogwoods that overlook the fire pit in the middle of the side lawn where two cords of oak and locusts sit along the fence at the edge of the woods. I'm grateful for the talks I've had around the fire with my friend A.D., who gave me a place to heal. Earlier today, I woke from my lawn chair nap to see a cooper's hawk glide across the lawn and land in a tree. It perched, wiped its wings, flew on. A storm predicted tonight will tear things apart to make way for new growth. So is that a poem? Is it a story? A little bit of both? Yeah, it's all of that. It's a little report from the field on the fourth day after my surgery. Simple as that. Nothing complicated about it. 
It's a very simple prose poem that describes a scene. It gives you a sense of my mood in that moment. It also gives you a sense of the relationship I have and had with A.D. A.D. was letting me stay at his place for the first 10 days after my surgery. So that's how A.D. got factored into that poem. And he also makes a few appearances throughout the poems I wrote during the first 10 days. So as I said, to become a successful memorizer, it's important to take the pieces you're working with and do them in tiny little bits. Learn the bits, the small bits, rather than trying to learn the whole thing. That said, before you even start with the small bits, it's worth getting a sense of the entire story that sits in the piece you're working with. The beginning, the middle, and the end. Like, for example, nesting boxes. It opens with the scene of the bluebirds overlooking the fire pit where my friend A.D. and I talk. So you know that we have a, a, a country scene. You know it's likely springtime because the bluebirds are claiming their nesting boxes. And then the scene shifts from the bluebirds in the fire pit and me having a conversation with A.D. That scene shifts to me sleeping earlier in the day in a lawn chair. And then the last bit of it, a hawk flies by. A cooper's hawk lands in a tree and then flies on. If you know the narrative of the poem, like I do, or the story, and you can tell it in your own words, that's the beginning, that's the launch point for becoming a successful memorizer. Once you have the story down, then you can add the, the words that have been written to fit into the story. Coming back to the veranda that I'm sitting on as I record this, I've already described it for you. So now you have a second scene, the description of A.D.'s yard and the fire pit and the Cooper's hawk flying by. Two very different environments. What they both have in common is the fact that I was able to work up um, a storytelling told narrative about both environments. Now, I am on the porch veranda here looking out on the sea. I was in A.D.'s yard and have a vivid memory of what his yard and his house and the grounds around his place felt like in the springtime in April, Western North Carolina. So in both situations, I can recall the atmosphere. I can feel the atmosphere. Here I'm sitting in it so I can describe it in a very immediate way. I remember A.D.'s yard. Also, the immediacy emerges as well, along with the words that we're now working with, the bluebirds in the nesting box. So now we arrive at your first quiz. You didn't think you were going to be tested on this, did you? Well, here's the test. Name three elements in the piece I just read. Three elements. Take a moment. Think about it. Do you have those in your head? What are they? You don't need to tell anybody, but just note if you can name three elements. I'll bet you can. I'll bet maybe nesting box, bluebirds. You might have said fire pit. Maybe Cooper's hawk. An element would be sleeping in the yard. Four elements. Actually fairly easy for me to remember because I'm already working with the poem. And here's another thing I want you to know. This poem that I'm working with right now I'm memorizing it 
currently. I don't actually have it fully memorized. It's one I'm working with, and I'm working with it as I'm recording this on the veranda here in the Philippines. So here's another note for becoming a successful memorizer. You can take as much time as you please working on something. I know we have a limited amount of time here, so I'm going through it rather fast. You can take a small piece, 12 lines, 14 lines, whatever it is, and go through it and go through it until you can just tell the story, no problem at all. And you can take, like I said, as much time as you, as you want with that. The key to it is to keep working with it, keep imagining it, and the key is to allow yourself to let your imagination have as much free form largesse as you possibly can. Make everything you imagine really, really big when you're working with a piece. And it's that large, wild, imaginative stuff that you can build inside your imagination that will start to create a relationship with the words and connect you emotionally as well. And we'll work with that idea of letting your imagination go large in just a moment. But first, let's go to the first line of the poem and the title. I'll bet you, you have a pretty good sense of what the title is, Nesting Boxes. And I suspect, even though you might not have the first line word for word, you have a sense of it. The first line is this, bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes. The reason you might have an easier time remembering the title and an easier time remembering the first line, Nesting Boxes, bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes. Well, we've worked on it a little bit. You have a context that you're playing around with, and you also have already likely started to get a view of a bluebird. You've seen bluebirds before. You know what the bluebird looks like. And if you've never seen one in the wild, you've certainly seen a picture of a bluebird. And if you haven't done that, you can always go to YouTube and you can see hundreds of bluebirds claiming their nesting boxes. So it's really easy to get that first idea in place once you have the atmosphere, a little bit of context, and you know something about a bluebird. It's a lot more difficult to get that first line and the title in place if you take the text, sit down, look at the text, and try just to remember the words, bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes, and do it over and over and over again. I will often reference that strategy because that's the strategy I used when I first started to memorize. I thought I was supposed to sit down and learn the words. It never occurred to me that the words would fall into place if I allowed myself to develop the sense of the circumstances that surround the words. It's a very different concept than just sitting there trying to get the words. So let's go back for a moment to the first line before we go on to the second line. You have a sense of bluebirds claiming their nesting boxes. And you could have a classic sense of it, the two small bluebirds coming to the nice little nesting box that's uh, attached to a tree, and they hop in the nesting box, build their nest, and that's that. Or if you wanted to really blow it up in your imagination, imagine instead of tiny little bluebirds, imagine two gigantic bluebirds the size of trees wearing bluebird-type hats that are spewing flames as they fly through the woods and spot their nesting box and they claim it by wrapping their wings around the nesting box and yelling to the top of their bluebird voices, this nesting box belongs to us. 
Another way to look at it, even though the bluebirds are huge, large, like trees, maybe they still have small bluebird voices. This nesting box belongs to us. Very different than the deep bluebird voices. But you got the point. You can do whatever you want when you let your imagination get bigger and bigger. Who knows where it'll go. But what it will do is it will tie you emotionally to the line. Bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes. So suddenly this line has more going on in it than just a line that opens a simple poem. You've got magnificent bluebirds with fire coming out of their hats, with great large wings that can wrap around all kinds of things. So here in this first line, we have accomplished the two essential elements of being a successful memorizer. One, keeping it small, bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes, and two, letting your imagination go as large as possible. And a third element you can put into the mix, and I recommend you do, is move around while you do this. Make a great proclamation. Bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes. And you see the great bluebirds flying through the forest claiming their nesting boxes. And pretty soon, bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes, become so integrated into your into your memory, into your psychology, that it's hard to forget. And it becomes really kind of amusing as well. And so there's your first line. First line of the poem, bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes. And also, it's worth noting that we spent 15 minutes on this first line, really working it up. So you can spend an entire day on one line when you're, when you're working in the direction of becoming a successful memorizer. Once you have one line down that you feel you know so well, you can just say it off the cuff like it was in a conversation. Hey, bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes. Did you see that, Joe? They're back. The bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes. When you can do that, you can then claim that you are a successful memorizer. You don't have to have thousands of lines. All you have to do is have one that you remember and one that you've done some work with so you have an emotional connection to it other than, oh, this is just a sentence that I just happen to know because I know it. So obviously, because we only have a limited amount of time here, we won't get through this whole poem. We will not memorize this whole poem today. Does it matter? Absolutely not. Tomorrow's always there. The next moment is always there. You can work with this, as I said, as long as you like. Let's go to the second line, which stands alone, attached to the dogwoods that overlook. So now that we have the first line, bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes. Second line's easy to insert into the narrative. Bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes attached to the dogwoods that overlook. Now here it's perfectly acceptable to go to the next line, the third line. Overlook what? Overlook the fire pit. Bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes attached to the dogwoods that overlook the fire pit. There's more to follow after the fire pit. For now though, this is all we need to allow our imaginations to expand. So for this second line, let's move away from the literal and really allow our imaginations to expand attached to the dogwoods that overlook. Now in A.D.'s yard, the bluebird boxes that were attached to the dogwoods were small bluebird boxes attached to small dogwoods. Fine, works well in the piece. 
in the memorization process, when you say to your imagination, hey, let's go big, you can do a lot of things with that. We already have the two gigantic bluebirds with fire coming out of their hats. Well, what is a dogwood tree? If you look it up online, you'll see a dogwood tree is a rather small tree, but it really doesn't have anything to do with dogs. Dogwood, what does a dogwood tree mean? Well, if you are a tree lover and you want to identify the tree, you would know the field signs for a dogwood tree. But if you're a successful memorizer and you want to move away from the literal, why not make the dogwood trees look like dogs in your imagination, big dogwood trees. So you have the dogs with the floppy ears and the tongues and the tails wagging in their, their, their branches growing out of their fur. And so the fur becomes the branches. And now you really have dogwood trees, dogs of wood that are actually trees with nesting boxes attached to them. So what would the nesting boxes look like? You can use your imagination to expand the nesting boxes. Maybe the nesting boxes are, are droopy. Maybe they're large. Maybe they're not made out of wood. Maybe the nesting boxes are made out of silk. Who knows what they can be? You can let your imagination do that. So you have large bluebirds. You have trees that look like dogs that are wooden with with fur that's now leaves, and you have drooping nesting boxes like grand condominiums or grand houses drooping off of these dogwood trees. And then the large bluebirds moving in. Do they even have a moving van? Ah, good question. We don't know about that. <laughs> so one thing to keep in mind here, we are going at a very slow pace to become successful memorizers. I keep reinforcing that. There is no hurry here. And when you allow your imagination to delight itself by giving it the encouragement, the green light, to really go big like we have in these first two lines and moving into the third line, when you do that, time ceases to exist. Something else takes its place. And the connection to the work starts to grow. So when you do the imaginative work for the first two lines, by the time you get to the third line, your imagination will have something to work with. It'll have a context. You'll have a, an imaginative sense of where you want to take this and how you want to expand it. So now we come to the third line. One, bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes. Two, attached to the dogwoods that overlook. Three, the fire pit in the middle of the side lawn, where? The third line stops at where, which naturally wants you to move to the fourth line. And when you see that natural need to move to the next line with no punctuation at the end of a line of poetry, that's called enjambment, which comes from French, meaning to stride over. So we stride from the third line to the fourth line and continue on to the fifth line in the middle. And that ends the first scene, the opening scene of the poem. You already have a sense of where the first scene closes in the fifth line because I've described it and I've also read the poem. So keep in mind that all these little elements, these tiny little fragments, if you will, eventually will fall together into one piece. It's a bit like spinning the kaleidoscope round and around and around. And when it falls together, it has one form. So now let's open it up a little bit here. We're coming to the third line 
and let's add the fourth line as well and then go into the fifth line so you can get a sense of how it starts to build. We started slowly with one image, the bluebirds, and then we built that out a bit. And as you build the images out, the piece gets bigger and bigger, even if it's a short poem like the one we're working with right now. And as you probably already figured out, we have just enough time to get through the first scene. So here's the first scene from the first line to the middle of the fifth line. Bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes, attached to the dogwoods that overlook the fire pit in the middle of the side lawn, where two cords of oak and locusts sit along the fence at the edge of the woods. One of the beauties of memorization is once you learn the piece by heart, you can speak it out loud in the oral tradition like a storyteller. And as you memorize the piece, you will start to form ideas around how you're going to speak it out loud. I say this now because I just mentioned enjambment and how you naturally stride to the next line. So when you present your work from a storytelling point of view, orally, from the spoken word point of view, you can tweak it however you like. So just keep that in mind as you're, as you're memorizing the piece. And your understanding of it will change, it will grow, it will transform as you go along. And as you make those changes, you will begin to get a better sense of how you want to present the piece. Take it easy, go slow, go fast. You'll figure that out as you go along. So let's play around with that third line and put some big ideas in it, build it out a bit. So we have the, the bluebirds with the fire and the crazy hats, and we have the trees that have dogs, and, and they look the dog woods. And now they're overlooking a, the fire pit in the middle of the side lawn. So the image I have in my head, I have the huge dogwoods standing high, high in the forest, and they're leaning over the fire pit, and they have big bulgy eyes that are looking down on this fire pit, and I have this huge fire raging in the middle of the lawn, and it's not raging like it's dangerous, it's raging like it's enthusiastic, crackle, crackle, and I can hear the sounds and smell the smoke, and I can see the dogwoods, the dogs above the fire pit leaning over, and I'm sitting there by the fire pit, and I'm looking up from the side lawn. And now I'm picturing the lawn as I remember it. So I've expanded the dogwoods and the bluebirds and the huge fire, but I've kept the lawn with the same proportions. So I have this contrast between the roaring fire and A.D.'s lawn, which is an easy bit of grass at the side of A.D.'s house that extends to the woods. So now we have a working image of the third line. Huge fire, quiet lawn, big dog woods with bulging eyes leaning over the fire. Keep in mind, when you build out the images like we're doing now in your head, your imagination will really stir up. It's excited. It loves stuff like this, the mess of it all. So you're going to naturally want to go right away into the fourth line. So what will happen is, as you break the pieces down into tiny increments and add imagery and thoughts about what does a fire pit look like or how would you build a nesting box or what a dogwood tree might look like, Keep in mind, there's no exact way to do this. This is just the way that I go about it. And you might have a very different take on it. I'd love to hear that. You can always reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com, and tell me how you do it. So now that we've built the third line out with some strong images, the fire roaring in the middle of the side lawn, it's time to move on to the fourth line and then to the 
end of this scene, which, as I said, stops in the middle of the fifth line with a period. So the fire pit in the middle of the side lawn where two cords of oak and locusts sit along the fence at the edge of the woods. So if you were going to go from the raging fire in the middle of the lawn, dogwoods overlooking this raging fire and the bluebirds still flapping around gigantic in the woods, and you're going to go from that to where two cords of oak and locusts sit along the fence at the edge of the woods, what kind of scene would you paint for the two cords of locusts sitting along the fence at the edge of the woods? It might be really easy to just imagine two cords of wood all stacked nice and beautiful, tight, almost like a mathematician put the two cords there along the fence. That's a pretty good image, and I will tell you, A.D. is a mathematician, and when A.D. stacks two cords of wood, that is exactly how he does it. A.D.'s stacks are absolutely beautiful. I don't know how in the world he has the patience to put each little bit of wood together so it finally forms into this beautiful stack of wood two cords, exactly like it should be. And imagining two cords of wood stacked like that, that's plenty for the imagination to work with. But what if you turn the locust and the oak into two characters? The locust and the oak. And what if they're sitting there, beautifully stacked, but instead of stacked like two cords of well-placed wood, you form two characters, the locust stack and the oak stack. Each character is made of little bits of wood, but it's moving. They're there, they're laughing, they're leaning against the fence, watching the fire burn, participating in the, in the entire scene. That's what I did. And once I did that, once I started to imagine what these characters would say, it was really interesting. I started to even come up with a dialogue between what Locust and Oak would say to each other if they were sitting along the fence. I mean, for example, they could have two different voices. Locust could have maybe a little bit of a higher voice, nasal. Well, hello, my name is Locust. Oak could have a, a lower, more uh, melodic voice. Hello, my name is Oak. And I was once a tree. So you, you get the point there. You let your imagination do something with that image that's not as predictable as trying to imagine a beautiful cord of wood. So now we have the opening scene and we have all of the elements in place, the large imaginative elements in place. The bluebirds, the box, the fire, the dogwoods, the, the locust and the oak having a conversation. All this is taking place in the first five lines the very opening of the piece. Now here's the good news. When you do all this imaginative work, you don't really have to try to remember it. You just allow your imagination to create all these things and stuff will fall into place. You will remember what you need to remember in the pace that you need to remember it in. I mean, in some ways, it's a bit like a good pot of soup. You put it on the stove, you cook it, you make it, you serve it, and then you put it in the refrigerator and let it sit for a day or two, and you take it back out, and it's even better than it was the first day you served it. And that's the way this works. It's a bit like cooking. Once you get your imagination bubbling, it will do a lot of the work without any attention. Once you get your soup on, you just let it simmer until it's ready to go. Same thing with this kind of work. 
So now I'm going to go over the first lines, the first opening scene, and as I do, let your imagination play around however you please. My bluebirds won't be your bluebirds. Your nesting box will be different from mine. So here you go, the first five lines. Let your imagination play as it will. Bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes attached to the dogwoods that overlook the fire pit in the middle of the side lawn where two cords of oak and locust sit along the fence at the edge of the woods. Now as I was saying all of that, I was imagining all of the things we've covered so far. And what happens when you, so what happens when you allow that large imaginative word to come into the spoken word part of this it disengages your self-consciousness. It opens up your fancy, and once that happens, you become amused, have a sense of humor about the thing. In short, it becomes good fun. We're getting close to the top of our time together, the top of the hour, so I'm not going to be able to do a full workup of the other half of this point. So what I'd like to do is just to review the whole thing, read it again, perform it again, and then maybe touch on a couple of things I did in the last part of it to, to fill out the imagery. So here we go, nesting boxes. Bluebirds have claimed their nesting boxes attached to the dogwoods that overlook the fire pit in the middle of the side lawn where two cords of oak and locusts sit along the fence at the edge of the woods. I'm grateful for the talks I've had around the fire with my friend A.D., who gave me a place to heal. Earlier today, I woke from my lawn chair and nap to see a cooper's hawk glide across the lawn and land in a tree. It perched, wiped its wings, flew on. A storm predicted tonight will tear things apart to make way for new growth. It only took me 48 seconds to read this poem. This one is really short, and yet we've spent almost 40 minutes working on just the first three lines. Here we are back to the slow movement that happens when you memorize. But in that slowness comes the speed of the imagination as it revs up. So in the second half, I've done as much imaginative work as I've done in the first half. So here's an example of what I mean about blowing things up. I'm sitting in the lawn chair and I wake from my nap and I see the Cooper's Hawk glide across the yard. Now that actually happened and I'm a bird watcher and I know how to identify most of the common birds you would see in your front lawn and some occasionally flying through like the Cooper's Hawk. So I wake up from my nap and I see this Cooper's Hawk. It's gliding across the yard. It lands in a tree at the edge of the woods and wipes its wings moves a little bit and then flies on and then at the end of the poem i say a storm predicted tonight will tear things apart to make way for more growth so like the two cords of wood which i had turned into two different characters i turned the cooper's hawk into a character as well a mechanical bird a large mechanical bird like a transformer bird coming across the lawn so at first in my mind i see the cooper's hawk it's just a hawk with feathers flying quietly across the lawn on an afternoon. Halfway across the lawn, it morphs into this metal, steel, huge transformer-type bird that flies into the trees and its wings are draping. And when it hangs there, it moves and it creaks. And then when it flies away, it crashes through the woods and becomes the storm that's moving in for the night. So now you have a very good sense 
of the fourth poem in my book, 100 Days, Poems After Cancer. Poem number four, Nesting Boxes. So now you have a better sense of how to become a successful memorizer. You probably have other techniques as well. This is not the only one out there. This is just one that I really, really enjoy using. And on that note, we're getting very close to the time to say goodbye. So I do want to leave you with, with one poem that you can memorize right now. It's a very, very short poem. And it's titled, On the Antiquity of Fleas. And it goes like this. Um, are you ready? You'll have it memorized after I say it. On the Antiquity of Fleas. Adam Haddam. Of course, you may also uh, want to memorize the short version of The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. You probably haven't memorized the long version of The Raven. It's a very rhymy poem, and it goes like this in the opening. Once upon a midnight dreary, as I pondered, weak and weary, over many a curious volume of forgotten lore. So that's how it opens, and it goes on for eight or nine minutes. I don't know how long it is. It's long. Here's the short version, easy to remember. Nevermore. That's all you need to know about the raven. Nevermore. So, now you have two short poems. Uh, on the Antiquity of Fleas, Adam Haddam, and the short version of the raven, Nevermore. So you can see how much fun this can be if you let yourself play around with it. And, in conclusion, even the most complicated poems, the ones that are considered the heavy hitters, can all be handled the same way as we handled nesting boxes, one line at a time. I mean, for example, T.S. Eliot's uh, Proof Rock, Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels, and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. So, already it's really complicated, but if you want to know the first line of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, the first beat, the first thought, the first image of this poem, all you have to remember is, it's an invitation. Let us go then. That's it. Let us go then. And if you want to add on, let us go then, you and I. So in some ways, no matter how long or short the poem is, all poetry is a bit imitational. It does ask us to go somewhere, and that's what we've done here in this time together. We've gone somewhere, and all writing, all imaginative work, all creative work asks us to all go somewhere. It invites us to take a trip. It invites us to encourage our own imaginations to go somewhere, or it invites people to join us as we journey along. However you do it, it's still a, an opportunity to transform. It's an opportunity to smile, to breathe, to enjoy, to imagine the bluebirds with their hats and the big dogs in the woods and the fire pit and the, and the oak and the locust having a conversation and that old metal hawk flying through the woods turning into a great storm. So thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio. By the way, Twice Five Miles comes from a poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Kubla Khan. And in Kubla Khan, they go twice five miles. They actually build a pleasure dome 
that covers twice five miles, which I believe the math tells you is 25 square miles. I'm not sure, but it's a fairly large. So that's where the name of this show comes from, Twice Five Miles Radio. And we go twice five miles and more like we've done just now to, to get, get, get at something, transform something, get a story, get an interview, get something to happen. So thank you for helping me make that happen. I really appreciate it. And again, this is this is uh, Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, and we're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville, 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thanks, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. Couldn't do it without you. I really do appreciate it. And thank you most especially for tuning in out there wherever you are. And I, I wish you all the luck on becoming a successful memorizer, if you so choose. And even if you don't want to be a great memorizer of vast amounts, you can become a successful memorizer by memorizing one poem. You've already done that. On the Antiquity of Fleas, Adam Haddam. Thank you ever so much for tuning in. See you somewhere else along the way. Until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.